1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious for whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see that your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. So you all made it past the Cherry Creek sneak? Yes, a couple of people wove their way through there. Yeah, I got stopped by that this morning. I got directed into the parking lot of the Cherry Creek Mall by a cop and was like, this isn't where I wanted to go. Um, the, uh, I, I'm, I have a bit of a cold, so if you hear some sniffles, that's not what I meant to say. You will hear sniffles. There's going to be a lot of sniffles in this. Uh, there's one. Um, so <laughs> now that I've drawn attention to it, and that will be all you'll be able to hear. Good morning. Thanks for coming this morning, uh, weaving your way around all of the traffic of Denver to make your way here. Uh, the, uh, we're getting back into our series after our break from uh, Easter last weekend, and we're moving back into our series entitled The Road Most Traveled. The reason we called it that is because First Peter is dealing with how we move as Christians through adversity and through suffering. And that's something that none of us get to dodge. None of us get a get-out-of-jail-free card on adversity and suffering. It's a road that we all must go down. And so in that sense, it is the road most traveled, and one that we frequently don't have much advice or, uh, or really a good way of thinking about how to move down that road, how to understand the adversity and the suffering that we're facing in our lives. Christianity can oftentimes be a, uh, a, a system of truth that, in a sense, pulls us out of our lives. And I think that can be a lot of people's reason for engaging with Christianity and reason for coming to church on Sunday morning is because they're dealing with adversity and suffering in their normal day-to-day life. And so we'll sort of take a vacation from that and go to church on Sunday morning. So in that sense, Christianity can be viewed as a picture of something so glorious that it actually pulls you out of your day-to-day life and suffering. 
Another view of Christianity, and one that we're uh, proposing here, is one that, it's, that it actually provides you with a clarity and a wisdom that pushes you back into your life in a more deep and intentional way throughout your day-to-day week, throughout your normal everyday life. It's not something that pulls you out, but it's actually something that instructs and informs how to engage more deeply with the adversity that you're in. In this series, we are considering that adversity. And we're asking the question of how to understand circumstances in our life that don't turn out the way that we expected them to. And with that, we're asking another question. Is it possible that adversity and suffering in our lives doesn't actually diminish our life, but it actually expands it? Is that possible, that the adversity that we're facing can actually have a power to expand the life that we're in? Another sniffle. I gotta stop calling them out because you probably wouldn't notice. And then I'm gonna talk about them. Now we're all noticing together. So when we left off the week before Easter, we, Russ took us through a section that described a tension that we feel in our lives as Christians, that Peter instructs us to really be a part of and engaging in this particular tension. And the tension was between holiness and love. See, we're called to both of these things. We're called to a holiness that instructs us to live lives that are, in a sense, separate from the world, to live lives that aren't, mo- aren't marked by our, typical, our culture's typical values, but are actually marked by God's values. God calls us to be holy as he is holy. So that sort of looks like a retreat from the world. But then at the same time, we're called to love, which looks like a pooling for and hoping for and praying and working for the success of our neighbors and the success of the culture that we're in and the friends that we have. And so that, on the same level, pushes us back into the culture. So we have to live with this tension. Oftentimes it's tempting to sacrifice one for the other, to sacrifice love for holiness or to sacrifice holiness for the sake of love. But really, holiness without love is just like a monastic retreat, like moving into a monastery, and we don't need to engage with the rest of the world. I'm just going to focus in on my own holiness. Uh, I read a great Onion article uh, that was talking about, it was like, local man's morning meditation routine allows him to completely ignore the feelings of others. (laughs) It's like, like, that's classic. Like... (laughs) That's exactly right. Like, local man found that all of the rest of the problems that didn't involve him melted away during his morning routine. So holiness can sort of start to look like that, this pull away from culture and the world. And uh, so holiness without love is sort of useless. But love without holiness is just like a vapid sentimentality. Loving you towards what? Loving you to what end? Hoping the best for you without anything determining of what, without any determining of what would be best for you is just vapid. It's sort of useless. I just love you, irrespective of anything and without any sort of direction. It's just sentiment. It doesn't actually change anyone or affect anyone. So we're called to hold together a holiness and a love. Last week, This week, Peter gets a bit more practical, and that trend is going to continue, even in 
the week to follow, he gets extremely grounded and very particular with his instruction. But this one, he starts to, he starts to move in on this question of, we're called to love people, but where do we get the power or the strength or the fortitude to actually love people in the midst of a world that seems to be, in many ways, warring against us, and uh, in a world where we're experiencing a lot of suffering ourselves? Where do we get the energy, the fortitude, the capability, the inspiration to actually be able to move into the world and love as he has called us to love? This week, Peter expands on that. And he calls us to three things throughout the text that we're looking at today. He, called us to, he calls us to, first of all, a single-minded focus. Second of all, he calls us to a clarity of our own identity. And thirdly, he calls us to action. So first, a single-minded focus, that's what we'll focus on, and then a clarity of identity, and then action. That's also like an archetype for any hero in a movie, if uh, you were curious. That's another place you might have seen that. Single-minded focus, clarity of identity, and action. So this week's, te- we'll start with single-minded focus. This week's text dovetails precisely out of uh, last week. And he's referring back to how to love. And he begins by telling us to put away these certain things. So he says, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Because this whole list, it sort of stems out of this malice, which is an evil intention. He's saying that in all of these things, hypocrisy, envy, slander, you have this evil intention that is covering them. You can't love while your heart is still being governed by this sort of evil intent. It's impossible. So consider, first off, envy. What does that look like? Envy looks like being actually sorrowful or pained or mad at the success of your neighbor. So rather than looking at the success of your neighbor and saying, that's what we're aiming for. Your success is my success. We've been hoping for that and pulling for that for others. Instead, envy makes their success your failure. Their, their like incredible ski picture on Instagram, it, it isn't good for you. It's actually bad for you somehow. Other people's enjoyment becomes somehow your loss. See, that's because when we see other people actually getting the things that in our deepest heart we are pursuing and longing for, what it does is it shines a spotlight on the true desires of our heart. And so in that envy, in that, uh, and it it can play out in all sorts of ways. I mean, these are all so deeply connected, hypocrisy, connected to envy. You have a conversation and you found out that this person had this incredible weekend, and all of a sudden yours got one notch better. You know, you're trading bike ride stories, and all of a sudden you hear their ride, and it's like, well, mine was a couple miles more now. So you're painting this picture of a face that isn't actually you to protect the things that you're truly longing after, the things that you truly think will bring you hope and meaning and purpose in the world. But the reality is they won't. So in this, Peter calls us to put away those things. And what he's doing is he's exposing, by us putting away those, he's exposing our true selfish longings. 
He's exposing our true longing to take something that shouldn't be giving us value and, and have it give us ultimate value. He exposes the true object of our desires. So that's why Peter then switches the conversation to being about what we're longing about. And his next command is, put these things away. But you can't just put them away, because these are actually about your longing. And that means what needs to happen is you need to begin to long for the appropriate thing. You need to learn to long rightly. You're going to long for something. Right now, you're longing for these things, and because of it, you can't love. And because of it, the success of your neighbor feels like failure, which is the opposite of love. It's malice. It's evil intention. So in order to put those things away, you need to correct your longing towards something that will actually enable you and encourage you to love your neighbor. So that's what Peter does next. We can't simply stop longing for something else. Excuse me, we can't simply stop longing without placing our longing on some other object. We are longers. It's a word I just made up. And what it means is... uh, (laughs) It's funny to define a word you just made up. Uh, We're we're purpose-built worshipers. We are worshiping something. You are worshiping something with your life. Peter's saying in order to love properly, that's what must be corrected. So here's an example of this principle uh, that we can't simply stop longing, but we need to direct our longing towards something else in order to change our desires. Uh, Iceland has seen the most dramatic drop-off in teen drinking and teen petty crime of any country in Europe. It's been incredible. So they went from one of the top countries experiencing a lot of uh, like drunkenness among, among teens and petty crime among teens. In 1998, in fact, it was 43% of 15 to 16-year-olds had reported being drunk in the past month. So 43%. Uh, in 2016, that dropped to 5%. Yeah, so what happened? Great question. Thanks, Michelle. It, <laughs> was, uh, it's a remarkable drop-off, like it's an anomaly. Uh, So what happened was a psychology professor from Metro State College here in Denver had this idea in uh, the mid-90s to describe what, what exactly a teen is looking for when they divert to petty crime or when they uh, divert to alcohol. What's going on before that? What creates that sort of disposition? And he discovered that there are certain personality traits that tended towards particular outcomes. Some teens were more driven towards just experiencing a rush, and so that would tend more towards petty crime. Others towards escape and relieving their anxiety. That would tend towards more drinking and smoking. Uh, So based on this theory, he has an idea for how to address the problem. And what he does is he gets a million-dollar grant, hooks up with this guy in Iceland, skipping over parts of the story, and uh, he sets up this program. And he says, uh, he says, the program was designed around the idea of just giving the kids better things to do. He says, we didn't say to them, you're coming in for treatment. We said, we'll teach you anything you want to learn. 
music, dance, hip-hop, art, martial arts. After 20 years of investment in that type of approach, Iceland now tops the European continent in uh, teen, well, I guess is the bottom, <laughs> in terms of teen drunkenness and teen petty crime. Because what he did was he saw we can't just tell them to stop it because they're longers, they're worshipers. They're going to point this longing towards something. We need to give them a better thing to point their longing towards. This will only work if they start longing for a better thing. So what's our controlled variable or what's our counterexample? Uh, in the United States, we have a program called D.A.R.E. Anybody familiar with D.A.R.E.? People sit through D.A.R.E. programs where a cop comes in and is like, these are drugs, don't take them. And we see, like, it's like meth after pictures of, like, Jesse Pinkman after he just got beat up. Uh, these are, uh, that's been our approach. And what's, what, can you think of a slogan? Just, just say no. Uh, there was a report, uh, this was in the Scientific American, uh, which is also my Twitter bio, says, the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object, excuse me, skip the quote, it says, uh, this is an analysis of the D.A.R.E. campaign. It says, a meta-analysis in 2009 of 20 controlled studies revealed that teens enrolled in the program were just as likely to use drugs as were those who received no intervention. So the D.A.R.E. program is 100% ineffective. There's no result. Because just say no denies who we are as humans. We can't just say no. We'd rather long for something bad than long for nothing. And so why do we not love? Why do our hearts not change? Why can we not just put away malice and deceit and envy and hypocrisy? Because we aren't seeing something better. And we'd rather long for something bad than long for nothing at all. We have to long. So what really changes us? What really gives us the ability to love in the way that Peter is calling us to? We have to shift our longing. We have to see something better to long for. That is what actually changes us. Uh, Thomas Chalmers is a, uh, was a Scottish minister in the 19th century, and he says it like this. He says, the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not by turning it away upon desolate and unpeopled vacancy, but by presenting to its regards another object still more alluring. Chalmers calls this the expulsive power of a greater affection. See, when we see a greater affection, when we see something more beautiful, it expels the evil out of our life. That's the way that our hearts actually change. They change by us not just gutting it out and trying to just say no. They change by us seeing something actually more beautiful, actually more valuable. So this is what Peter is getting at. And he calls us to this, this single-minded focus in viewing our new affection. He says, long, like newborn infants, for the pure spiritual milk, 
that by it you may grow up into salvation. I uh, have firsthand experience with a newborn infant right now who uh, is not in the room currently because he's doing this very thing. <laughs> he's longing for the pure spiritual milk. See, this is a single... Oh, there's the connection, yeah. So there's this clear... There's a true single-minded focus to him. He doesn't... There's like three things in his life, maybe. There's Megan. There's like half of me but not really, that's generous. I'm not a thing in his life yet. I just, I'm the thing that rocks him to sleep. And uh, there's sleep, but he doesn't really know that exists. And then there's, uh, there's food, there's milk. He has a complete single-minded focus, knowing that there's nothing else by which I can grow up. There's, there's no other need that I feel truly compelled towards in this way. And Peter is saying you need to be like that, for the pure spiritual milk. What is that? It's the word of God. That word spiritual is the same, uh, has the same stem as in John 1 when it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's talking about Jesus and the word of God. He's saying it, you need to long for this single-mindedly. So he says, put away the longings that drive you towards hypocrisy, towards malice, towards envy and deceit. But he doesn't just say to put those away. He says long with this single-minded focus, like a newborn for milk, for this better thing. Long for this. Replace your longing. And then he qualifies it. He says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Which is so practical. Because you don't long unless you think that it is actually good. And that tasted is such an interesting way to say it because we can know things, right? Uh, a friend of mine just recommended, it was actually Zach, you guys know him, uh, <laughs> just recommended to, to watch this movie on Netflix called Some. It's about sommeliers, uh, like the wine people in restaurants. And they uh, are like these expert sommeliers, and so they'll drink a glass of wine and they'll say, Mm, it's tire and plum and crushed apple and, you know, there's like all of these adjectives where it's like, all right, <laughs> I like 50% believe you. <laughs> and, uh, so you can hear all of those descriptions of the wine that they can so readily call to mind, but it, it's nothing really until you've tasted the wine. All of that excess language is honestly just pointing to the fact that taste is something that we can't really get at with language. Taste is something that you, you just need to experience it. You need to do this for yourself. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good. So what does that mean? That means in order to shift our longing, actually we can back up further, in order to love, our longing has to be shifted away from these things that we're just competing over with each other, that we're squabbling over with each other, away from position in our company, away from authority in our friendships, away from money and sex and power. In order to love, our desire has to be shifted away from those things, and it has to be pointed towards this pure spiritual milk of the word, 
towards what God has done for us and seeing that truly and clearly with a single-minded focus for that type of desire. But we can't do that. We can't just make our longings be what we want our longings to be without having actually tasted that it's good. You long for the wine because it's good, and you've tasted it, so you know that. But how can that be true of what we see in God or of a longing for God's word? How do we taste it such that we actually experience it and hold on to it? That's where Peter continues on. And he continues by showing us who Jesus is and then what that means for our identity. And by seeing that clarity of identity, we're able to, I think, get closer to tasting that the Lord is good. So let's continue on into clear identity. So Peter now shifts into showing us who Jesus is more clearly and then who we are as we relate to him. But he uses this sort of strange metaphor of a living stone. He says, as you come to him, him is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So that's weird. I'm not Charles Darwin, but stones don't live. <laughs> it's the only naturalist I know. I don't, can't think of it, Steve Irwin. And stones don't live. So what does he mean by this? Jesus is this living stone that we come to. It gets clarified. The metaphor gets clarified when, when he uses this term it, that you're being built up as a spiritual house. See, what he's saying is he's drawing this metaphor between the Old Covenant's temple system, where the temple forms the heart of, the, of religion. And the temple is actually, this is something that's difficult for us to grasp, because we often think of the temple in the Old Testament like we think of this church. It was simply the place that the people gathered to express their religious affections. But it's so much more than that because the temple was the literal presence of God on earth. This is where God himself actually dwelt. So if you were to connect with God, you had to go to the temple. That's where you actually connected with God. So when he's saying you're being built up as living stones into the spiritual house, he's saying in, in because of what Jesus has done, this church that is forming behind him, it's like this old temple, which was the actual dwelling place of God. But you see, it's not made of the, that temple was made of dead stones that couldn't move, and they didn't, they didn't move around and have these lives. But he's saying, now you, like living stones, are who God, that is how God dwells amidst the world. You are the living stones that are aligned with Jesus, who is the cornerstone. So the cornerstone was the, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It was actually the corner of the building. It was the most important stone, the one that was first laid, and from it, all of the other stones were aligned. So that means that if the cornerstone is out of whack, then all of the other stones are going to be wonky. But if it's perfect, then the other stones will be able to set be set perfectly in line 
with the cornerstone. So it's saying you, it, there's this new type of church being built that is this new dwelling place of God in the world. And no longer is there this special class of person that is the priests that are able to go in and have contact with God, but now even you can go in and have immediate contact with God, like living stones that are built up in the world. See, this says so much about us as a church body. And this identity, this lofty position that, that Christ has given us as his now active temple in the world, this living temple, this living presence of God that's moving out into the world. It's really, it, it, it's, it's such a lofty and high picture of who he has made us to be in him. You see, it changes the way that we should think about ourselves as the church. Because the church as being made up of living stones means the church is not a place that you can go visit. It means, and as much as I would like it to be, because this would make this job so much more simple, the church isn't even just a calendar of events that you can attend. But the church, instead of being a structure or an organization or a calendar of events, the church is a movement that takes place in our hearts by a group of people whose, whose longings have been shifted. And therefore, they're able to come together for each other and for the place that they're in in a, in a wholly unique way. That, that no, amount of, uh, no amount of bad planning could get in the way of. And no amount of good planning could really replicate in any way. Because as living stones, there's this movement that is happening. And that's the only thing that can explain the history of the church. Because when you look through the church's history, there's, it's full of scandal and backstabbing and hypocrisy and deceit. And to, we could borrow some words, some malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. The church seems to be full of those things. It, churches gain funds and rise up, and then they lose those funds and dissolve and disappear. Churches have scandal in the leadership, and then the whole church vanishes. And yet, the church continues. It continues to grow and to thrive in the world, like living stones, this sort of this movement over an organization that simply can't be stopped. It's as strong and powerful as the Spirit of God that inhabits it. And it's as surely destined for success by and as that same Spirit. So he raises this picture of who we are as priests in this new type of temple, offering these spiritual sacrifices that are our lives, that are going up as a pleasing aroma constantly to God. So that changes the way you view your everyday life. Because all of a sudden, there's not the spiritual things that I'm doing and the non-spiritual things that I'm doing. There's no delineation of place or structure. But it's the kingdom of God, the, this new living temple, is moving out into the world when I decide to respond to an aggressive email graciously, when I decide to admit my wrongs, when I decide to truly be and bear myself outside of, it, even while I'm so tempted towards a, a hypocrisy that would make me feel more safe. See, the, 
living temple aligned with our true cornerstone. It shifts who we are. So Peter continues with his description of identity in Christ. He says, So the honor is for you who believe. Now he paints, in a sense, sort of like a darkening backdrop that he's able to shine a blazing light against. But first, we have to see this darkening backdrop. Because if there are those that are part of the temple, it means that there are those that aren't. He says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So we see that stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What does that mean? Another way to get at this language is they, it's something that we find offensive and therefore we reject it. You see, Jesus is like that. Jesus as this cornerstone, even the living temple, even us as like those living stones that are aligned with Jesus as Christians in the world can be seen as things that are just offensive and therefore worth rejecting. So, that's because we hold to these values that aren't the values of our culture. We, we disagree in terms of what it means to express your identity. We disagree in terms of what it means to express your sexuality. We disagree in terms of what it means to be loyal. There's a lot that we agree on. Don't mishear me. But there's a lot that we disagree on. And therefore, it, it is offensive and rejected. You see, in a, in a recent survey, well, I'll go here first. The, people that first. the people that Peter is writing to are facing a far more severe rejection from their culture than we are. <laughs> they, are under, they are under a strict persecution from the Roman government. They've been driven from their homes. They are literally under attack, fleeing for their lives because of who they were as Christians. We face nothing like that. So, but oftentimes we still, we, I think we kind of like thinking we're persecuted. And we kind of like thinking we're more persecuted than we actually are. So I want to take a moment amidst this conversation about persecution to sort of cut that off. In a recent survey, 57% of Christians said that Christians face a lot of discrimination in the U.S. today, while just 44% said the same of Muslims. I'm not a sociologist, but I, I don't think we ought to think we face as much persecution in our country as Muslims do. And I think that it's empirically wrong if we do. In fact, I think that it demonstrates sort of a fetishization of persecution and we use whatever persecution we face as sort of a metric for our success, rather than looking towards the true flourishing of the jobs and businesses and, and cities that we're in, rather than looking at the winning of souls and, and seeing people more loved and more uplifted 
as our true measure of success. And quite frankly, I think that's because it's easier to get people mad at us and to self-righteously feel correct than it is to do the difficult work of actually winning people's desires for Christ and demonstrating his true beauty over and over again. Because that demonstration of his true beauty requires us dying constantly. It requires us forgiving when we want to get vengeance. It requires our constant laying down of our lives. So, that said, to just sort of mitigate this sort of how we can start to talk about our own persecution. But there is a reality that we do face a real persecution in the world. Not necessarily outwardly from our culture, but we do live in a world that is clearly out of alignment with God's purposes. We live in a world in which we're tainted by sin and in which we are all going after the same small pie and doing whatever it takes to get there, thinking that the things in there will justify us. We do live in a world full of real death and pain and suffering because of that. And so Peter offers two things in this section. He offers a warning to those that reject God And he offers a word of comfort to us who are truly living in the midst of pain and suffering. So first of all, let's look quickly at the warning. He says, they stumble, which is, in a sense, another way of saying they reject. So they reject Christ because they disobey the word. See, he's offering a reason for their rejection, and he finds that reason in their disobedience. So, what does that mean? It means that none of us come to God impartially. I would always doubt the sort of strident atheism of my professors in college, because they stand a lot to gain from being atheists. They are in a subculture that really prizes a a sort of academic, informed atheism. And so they stand a lot to gain by remaining atheist. In that disobedience, they reject the cornerstone. They reject because they disobey. And we all come to Jesus like that because all of us, none of us are living in line with with how Jesus is calling us to live, and therefore we all stand to gain something by him being wrong. If he is wrong, then that means I don't have to adjust this part of my life that so desperately needs adjusting. I can just say that he's wrong. See, they reject because they disobey. But listen, we can't be too tone deaf as Christians because there's a lot of benefit that, say, someone like me gains from identifying with Jesus. In that same way, I'm a a pastor of a church, which means I'm part of a Christian subculture that I gain benefit from for identifying with Jesus. So Christians and non-Christians, none of us come to him impartially, which means we need to constantly be checking and addressing our longing. Are we longing for him because we've tasted and seen that he is good? That needs to be constantly checked and corrected. So he offers that warning, saying they, you reject him because you disobey. 
You aren't impartially directing him. And finally, he offers a comfort. He says, even amidst this terrible pain and suffering that his original hearers are experiencing and that we experience in our personal lives, he says they reject Christ as they were destined to do. You see, that means that their rejection of Christ is not stepping out of line with God's ultimate plan and authority. That there is no amount of suffering and pain that has entered the world from the rejection of Christ that God is not absolutely and completely in control of. God has not been mocked. God has not been uh, subverted. His plan still stands. See, this shifts the way that we can approach our suffering because this isn't something that God isn't in control of or can't use or can't bring redemption through, but it's something that he is using, even if we can't see it right now. So he offers this as a word of comfort. He says, they disobey, but listen, this is as they were destined to do, and you know the one who destined them. You know what he did for you. So against this backdrop of rejection of Christ, Peter blazes this incredible image of uh, our new identity. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen to those descriptions. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. You see, he's taken you out of this same darkness, of the same darkness that the people who are still disobeying are are still in. He says he's taken you out of that and brought you into his marvelous light into this incre- into the true, direct, I- immediate, unmediated, there's nothing in between your experience of God. He's brought you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. See, just as they were destined to disobey, he destined you to enjoy, to taste and see that he is good, to enjoy completely his glory in the world. And when you're able to make that shift towards seeing him as the most glorious thing, that informs how you're then able to love. But that happens when you see who he has truly made you. Because you you probably don't feel like a royal priesthood. I don't think I've ever felt that way. And yet he's saying, that's what I've done. And quickly, before he even leaves you a moment to start to enjoy the swagger of that position, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He says, remember, once you weren't a people, once you had no identity in the world, once you couldn't sing a song that said you were a brother of Jesus or a son of God, remember that. And it is not by your own doing that you're able to now but it's totally for God's glory being proclaimed. So he gets at that clearly when he says that he does this, that 
you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you see how Jesus has rescued you, and even the self-deceit that he has rescued you from, then you will proclaim the excellencies of him. That's why our last point, which I'll move through quickly, is action. We'll spend a bit more time on this next week, but he, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, he urges his readers as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners, just someone who's passing through. And that makes sense now because we see that he's made them this new type of people, this new chosen race. And so that means the way that they relate to their culture is no longer as someone who's just in it, but it's as a traveler who can make observations about a culture that you can never make as a part of it when you're just on the inside looking around the inside. There are things that you can see from the outside that are just different as a sojourner. And he calls us to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that means that there is real action that we need to make as a church in the world so that this movement that can be sparked in us by tasting together the excellencies and the glory of God, by single-mindedly striving after this pure spiritual milk of the word, so that our hearts are truly changed by our affections being truly changed, then we can become a movement that actually transforms our city until our affections change, that will never happen. So I hope that together we would pursue that. We would, we would pursue tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Then we'll actually be able to love our city. So with that, I'll take a few questions. What are the spiritual sacrifices that Peter mentions in these verses? Great question. So uh, in Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the only other time in the Bible that we see this section uh, or that, that phrase, the spiritual sacrifices. And in, in that verse, he describes us as living sacrifices, which is another thing just about as weird as living stones because sacrifices are dead. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to try and come up with the name again. Um, sacrifices are dead. So what must that mean then for us to offer these spiritual sacrifices or these living sacrifices? It means in our lives we're constantly, over and over again, faced with opportunities to either pursue something that we think will bring us glory or pursue God's glory. So another way of saying that is over and over again we have opportunities to pursue our own glory or to pursue God's glory. And that happens in actions and in our minds. I got in an argument outside of our apartment complex the other day because I was walking my dog without a leash. And uh, this is America, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's on the list of things I wanted to say. 
And so my dog was becoming very playful with another dog, and uh, a lady in my apartment complex, hello if you're here, uh, was, uh, she was very unhappy with me. And I, I like walked upstairs, and I was so mad at her, even though like I was the one walking the dog without a leash. But I, was, I like have such, I like want vengeance. It's like, you know what? I'm going to wait until she walks her dog, and like, I'm going to go up and rile up the dog. <laughs> um, so every time that that desire for vengeance mo moves into my mind, and I can cathartically entertain it and enjoy imagining what uh, that vengeance would look like, I have a choice. I can choose his glory over my glory. My glory looks like it, it, her being convinced that she's wrong and I'm right. His glory looks like it doesn't matter what she thinks of me. <laughs> and maybe I should humbly follow the emails from our apartment complex that say, don't walk your dog without a leash, even though this is America. <laughs> That's another time where I need to switch my thinking. Uh, next question. In addition to diving into the reading of Scripture, what are some practical steps you would suggest for us to change the longings of our hearts? Yeah, that first one is, is crucial. How can you know a God when you ignore the, the medium through which he's revealed himself? I mean, think of the heartbreak of hearing, depart from me, I never knew you. And, and by the way, I was on your, I was on your bedside table I wasn't hidden. I wasn't far from you. You could have, you could have known me and seen me. All, all that stress and anxiety that covered your life, you could, have, you, you could have seen what I said about myself. So that was a little, you should read your Bibles moment. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I think that this imagery of a, a spiritual temple that's being built up means that we need each other. So I really like the way Tim Keller talks about the way that C.S. Lewis talks about this. Um, <laughs> which is that he describes these, this group of friends, uh, and one of the friends dies. And he realizes that when, when that friend had passed away, they, the dynamic of the group had so shifted that there were aspects of each one of their personalities that now didn't really get expressed because there were parts of them that only Fred really brought out. And that's true of us as humans, where no one person draws out all aspects of our personality, and yet we think that our knowing God can take place in a completely solitary way without hearing the testimony of someone else without hearing the way that someone else has tasted the goodness of the Lord. We think, well, this is just something I can do alone for 20 minutes in the morning with a cup of coffee, and I'll Instagram it. <laughs> uh, we require each other pursuing the Lord together in order for us to gain a truly nuanced and a truly glorious perspective of who God really is, uh, which, means, which means move down, sit closer, Hear each other singing. Ask each other how you're doing. Pray for each other. 
So then when you pray and you see something actually happen in someone's life, now you're celebrating it too. And when they're in the midst of a hardship, it's not so hard on them because you're bearing up with them. We, we aren't going to get to know God in isolation. If we can't do that for a human, how much less can we do that for God? The answer is a lot. <laughs> a lot less. Uh, next question. Great. Let's pray. That was a long one. I wrote too much. I apologize. Holy Father, Lord, I think we're so inadequate for the task of showing each other, showing our city how good you are, how good you've been towards us. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts that we might know in a new way the height and breadth and depth of your love towards us, that it might shift our longings so that we would live our lives for your glory, that we might actually be able to move away from those things that wage war against our souls and truly love the people that you've called us to love. Father, I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.